Good morning, everyone, and welcome to uh, this very new podcast that um, I just started today. It's called Giggles and Crime, and my name is Corinne, and I am here with... My name is Whitney. My name is Miranda. And we are all members of the women's bowling team, and we we are going to talk to you about some true crime today that happened um, back in like 2010, 2014 area, and... We're just going to kind of fill you guys in on basically what happened. But before we start, I do want to let you know that these are just our point of views coming from us personally. This is not Kentucky Wesleyan College. This is just our opinions and our point of views. So, Bic Han and Hue Han Pan were classic examples of the Canadian immigrant success story. Han was raised and educated in Vietnam and moved to Canada as a political refugee in 1979. Bic, who later became his wife, she came separately, also a refugee. They married in Toronto and lived in Scarborough. They had two kids, Jennifer, in 1986, and then they had Felix three years later, and they found jobs at the Aurora-based auto parts manufacturer Magna International, as Han was a tool and die maker and Bic was making car parts. So I think they, I think they lived a pretty, pretty well, healthy, wealthy life, you know, before everyone got older. Um, I didn't know they were from Canada. Yeah, I didn't either. And I kind of, I kind of knew they were from <laughs> Vietnam. <laughs> I'm sorry. So by 2004, Bic and Han had saved enough to buy a large home with a two car garage on a quiet residential street in Markham. And it looks like Han drove a Mercedes-Benz and Bic had a Lexus ES300 and they accumulated $200,000 in the bank. Wow. Which I think was a lot for the early 2000s. I mean. So they yeah, were that's rich. True. They was rich, rich. Like for real. Hmm. Compared Shoot, from back I don't then. Wanna, I want to be with my parents too. Yeah. I ain't got to go off on my own. That was mm-hmm. also back then when the prices were like yeah, 10 when times lower. Facts. When gas now. prices were like 50 cents per gallon. Yeah. I think that was a Must little further nice. back. <laughs> Do what? That's probably a little further back. Yeah, that's true. But I think in the early 2000s, like gas prices were still very low, which is also why they had so much money in their bank account, mm. which made them somewhat rich. But, you know, I don't know. Did so, I miss the part of what they do for a living? Like, what do they do? So, Han is a tool and die maker, and then Bic makes car parts. So, I'm not sure. I'm not exactly sure what a tool and die die maker is. <laughs> I was like, what is that? I have no idea what that is, but it says they work in an auto parts manufacturer. So, I guess the dad like does something with tools. <laughs> He's a tool maker, I guess, and then his wife is the. You know, making the car parts. I don't know if maybe he sells the car parts. I have no idea. But that's what it says. Um, So with Jennifer, they enrolled her in piano classes by the age of four, as she showed very early promise. By elementary school, she'd racked up a trophy case full of awards. They put her in figure skating, and she hoped to compete at the national level with her sights set on the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver until she tore a ligament in her knee. Some nights during elementary school, Jennifer would come home from skating practice at 10 p.m., do homework until midnight, and then head to bed. The pressure was intense, and she began cutting herself little horizontal cunts on her forearms. Dang. Yeah. So I think the fact that they had put her in figure skating 
And I think I think she wanted to go far, but then I think she kind of started to get tired of it. Yeah. And I don't know if she wanted to be in figure skating in the first place because it mm-hmm. said they put her in figure skating. She probably didn't want to do any of it. No. She felt like she probably had to. I mean, she probably did have to. Yeah. And that's probably why. I mean, it's uh, honestly the way the parents raised and like shaped her. That's probably why she went a little cuckoo and was like, okay, they need to die. Yeah. Well, so, you know, I mean, that's that's kind of why it says the pressure of that was intense and you know, when she began cutting herself, because like, like it said, you know. And how old was she when she did that? I think she was, I don't think she was four years old. It said, it didn't, it didn't say how old she was I when they put her. I would hope she wasn't four years old. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think she was four, but they didn't, it didn't say what age she was when they put her in figure skating. But I'm assuming, she, I'm assuming Still it says. Still probably a younger age. I'm assuming, I'm, I'm assuming eighth grade, because then it, next one, it says as graduation from grade eight loomed. Jennifer expected to be named valedictorian to collect a handful of medals for her academic achievements, but she received none and she was not named valedictorian and she was stunned. So what was the point in trying if no one acknowledged your efforts? That is actually a very good question. What, what is the point of trying if no one's going to acknowledge you? Um, intrinsic motivation. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's, it's you got to be internally proud and motivated for yourself. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she was Who like... Who cares about other people? I, exactly. I don't know how motivated she really was, if she was motivated at all. I mean, I feel like part of her may have been, but probably not. I think most of it stemmed from, oh, I gotta do this for my parents. I gotta do this to make my parents yeah. proud. So, and that, I mean, again, that goes back to probably being raised like that. Like mm-hmm. she didn't have the opportunity to do something for herself. It was always for her parents. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think like at that young of an age, you know, she was just like, Oh, I love my parents, you know, I'm gonna do everything they tell me to mm-hmm. and you know, I'm gonna be the good kid. Because well, I mean you look up to parents when you're yeah. growing up. Like that's supposed to be your role models. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So it looks like Jennifer played the flute and she was in the senior stage band. Um, It looks like that Jennifer's friendly, confident persona was a facade beneath, which she has tormented. She was tormented by feelings of inadequacy, self-doubt and shame. When she failed to win first place at skating competitions, she tried to hide her devastation from her parents, not wanting to add add worry to their disappointment. Her mother, Bick, noticed something was amiss and would comfort her daughter at night. When Han was asleep, saying, you know, all we want from you is you just do your best. Just do what you can. And I think it's like the fact that, you know, like it, like it said, at school, Jennifer would, you know, how people like hide their depression and hide their sadness. I think that's what Jennifer was doing was hiding her sad emotions and her angry emotions. And just at school was like, you know everyone was like oh my gosh hey jennifer like you're so happy yada yada and she would like be that way towards them like back to them but nobody really knew what she was actually going through yeah which i think was a very important part in this article showing that you know her mom her mom was really there for her i don't think her mom was the problem in this situation like we haven't gotten that far yet in the article but i think i've 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 seen this documentary and I think that her mom, Bick, really is there for her. And I don't think she's as bad as her dad. I think her dad is the one who's like, you know, you got to get straight A's. You got to do good in school. You got to do this. And her mom's like, you know, let's, you know, let's give her a little minute. 
And it could be for like their understandings maybe just be may just be different. Like yeah. where the daughter sees them as being pushy and like controlling and like mm-hmm. expecting so much, she may only see it like that, but her parents may not that they might <laughs> that might not be their intentions. Yeah. But that's just how she's seeing it. So that can have an effect. No, I understand it. Yeah. <laughs> so this this next part in the article is gonna get a little you're, you're, it's going to get a little wild. So she had Ooh. been a top student in elementary school, but midway through grade nine, she was averaging 70% in all subjects with the exception of music, where she excelled. Using old report, card, report cards, scissors, glue, and a photocopier, she created a new forged report card with straight A's. Since hmm. universities didn't consider marks from grade nine and 10 for admission, she told herself it wasn't a big deal. I think it was a big deal because you're forging report cards and you're using old ones coming here and, you know, putting straight A's on it to make your parents think you're getting straight A's to make the school get, think you're getting straight A's so that you'll graduate high school. But in reality, if you keep doing that, you're not going to graduate high school. You're no. going to get left back. Right. Which I think is a little ridiculous. So so far, I think it seems like it. it's both. Like, it's, it's, it's already it's, taken it's a, a turn. It's, it's taken a, a turn. It's like a party uh, fault. I don't think it's anyone's like specific fault because raising someone has a lot to do with how they how they behave how they handle things but i mean she took it way too far i think she's not giving them the opportunity to uh (laughs) i don't think she's giving them the opportunity to respond differently to like right yeah no i agree um yeah, so moving on from that, uh, you know, she was a good student, you know, but she had her ups and downs. Her dad was the classic tiger dad, and Bick was his reluctant accomplice. They picked Jennifer up from school at the end of the day, monitored her extracurricular activities, and forbade her from attending dances, which Han considered unproductive. Parties were off limits, and boy- boyfriends were forbidden until after university, a.k.a. college. So, you know, when she was 22, that's when she could get a boyfriend. When Jennifer was permitted to attend a sleepover at a friend's house, Bick and Han dropped her off late at night and picked her up early the following morning. By age 22, she had never gone to a club, been drunk, visited a friend's house, or gone on vacation without her family. Now, that is something I want to talk about, because that if I lived that life, I don't know how much longer I could live in that house without being able to go to a school dance or going to a party. Well, you're missing a lot of, like, social gatherings. That's what I'm saying. Of, like, her parents didn't want her to socialize with people. How did they expect her to, like, to be herself do homework. other people? Yeah. Right. Like, how is she supposed to meet friends if she can't even go to a simple school event? Yeah, because I feel like that's, in this case with those parents, you know, they feel like there's those type of parents that are like, well, how come we don't see your friends? How come you don't... You know, you don't do this and do that. Well, you know, it's like you forbid me to do extracurricular activities. You can't. I can't go to dances. I can't. I literally can't have friends. Can't have a boyfriend. You know, I can't go on vacation without them. Sleepovers. You drop me off at like midnight. Pick me up at six a.m. You know. So yeah, it's what's like, what's the point? What's the point of even going to a sleepover? Exactly. That's what I think. It's you know, a little, little, little crazy. So it looks like. Digging a little deeper here, um, this is when Jennifer met Daniel Wong. He was a year older, goofy, with a big laugh and a wide smile and a little paunch around his waistline. 
He played trumpet in a school band and a marching band outside of the school. Their relationship was platonic until a band trip to Europe in 2003. After a performance in a concert hall filled with smokers, Jennifer suffered an asthma attack. She started panicking and was led outside to the tour bus and almost blacked out. Daniel calmed her down, coaching her breathing. He pretty much saved my life, she later said. It meant everything. And that summer, they started dating. So I think this was Daniel, who I um, was... I think this. I think Daniel eventually became Jennifer's like the like the love of life the love of jennifer's life like i think jennifer really fell for him like after this incident here where he basically saved her life i think that's when jennifer like started to fall in love with him and was like you know he's the one for me he saved my life from a asthma attack you know and yeah i don't know so is this the one she kind of hid from her parents this is the one that she hid from her parents this Mm -hmm. this is daniel who was the first I'd say, quote, quote, guy that she really ever talked to, had a relationship with. Um, So, yeah, that was Daniel that she eventually would fall in love with. So now we're getting into back to Jennifer being a straight A student. So Jennifer's parents assumed their daughter was an A student. In truth, she earned mostly B's, which reasonably is not bad. You know, if you're getting B's, you're at least you're not you're not failing. You're no. getting you're getting B's. So it was, you know, reasonable for most kids, but unacceptable in her strict household. So Jennifer continued to doctor her report cards throughout high school. She received early acceptance to Ryerson, but then failed calculus in her final year and wasn't able to graduate high school. The university withdrew its offer. Desperate to keep her parents from digging into her high school records, she lied and said she'd be starting at Ryerson in the fall. She said her plan was to do two years of science and transfer over to U of T's pharmacology program. Sorry, I can't pronounce pharmacy, but it's pharmacology, which was her father's hope for Jennifer to become a pharmacist. So Han was delighted and bought her a laptop. Jennifer collected used biology and physics textbooks and bought school supplies. In September, she had pretended to attend Frosh Week. When it came to tuition, she doctored papers stating she was receiving an OSAP loan and convinced her dad she'd won a $3,000 scholarship. So I think this is a little crazy considering the fact that I'm not exactly sure where Ryerson is. I'm assuming it's in Canada somewhere, probably community college, that she was telling her parents that she was going to this school and, you know, never graduated high school. So she had to keep that from her parents to make them think that she was going to college, which is kind of kind of crazy if you ask me you know mm-hmm. how are you hiding it through that long um i don't know how she faked all that though i don't either like I between mean, like grants and like stuff like that yeah she's trying extra hard yep because that's how desperate she got was mm-hmm. to keep her parents from finding out so she would pack up her book bag and take public transit downtown Her parents just assumed she was headed to class. Instead, Jennifer would go to public libraries where she would research on the web what she figured were relevant relevant scientific topics and fill her books with copious notes. She'd spend her free time at cafes or visiting Daniel at York University, where he was taking classes. She picked up a few day shifts as a server at Eastside Mario's in Markham, taught piano lessons, and later tended bar at a Boston pizza where Daniel worked as a kitchen manager. At home, Han often asked Jennifer about her studies, but Bick told him not to interfere. Let her be herself, she'd say. 
So this, like, again, it sounds like that Bic was not the tiger parent. It right. sounded like she was the one who wanted Jennifer to have a life. Mm-hmm. And I think she wanted Jennifer to go out, find a boyfriend, find friends, and Han just would not allow it. He was, like you said, like I said, the tiger dad. So, so. I wonder why Jennifer didn't just go through with killing the dad instead of both. Yeah, exactly. I wonder if she just didn't see it that way, maybe. I, I, I think maybe that the people who killed her mom, I think she just said her parents and didn't just say, I want you to. I think maybe, you know what? I think maybe she told them, I just want you to kill my dad. And maybe the men who were involved were like, well, there's a mom down here. Maybe she wants us to kill her, too. You know, maybe they didn't maybe. see it like that. Or maybe she like kind of went through it with her mom mm-hmm. also because she knew like her mom would probably be like extremely tore up or like something like that or feel like her mom would find a way leading it back to her even though they got caught anyways. Like mm-hmm. it, I feel like it would have been a faster investigation if her mom mm-hmm. would have stayed alive. I, I agree. I mean, I think her mom, if her mom was involved, you know, I think it's just a matter of how long the investigation would take and whether or not Jennifer would tell the truth. You know, maybe they still could have shot Bick, but Bick would have stayed alive and she would have been alive to tell the truth. So after Jennifer had pretended to be enrolled at Ryerson for two years, Han asked her if she was still planning to switch to the University of Toronto. She said yes, and she had been accepted into the pharmacology program. Her parents were thrilled, and she she suggested moving in with her friend Topaz downtown for three nights a week. And Bick sympathized with Jennifer's long commute each day and convinced Han that it was a good idea. Once again, Bick convincing the dad that Jennifer is in college and she should be able to go out on her own and do what she wants. So Jennifer, but Jennifer never stayed with Topaz. Monday through Wednesday, she stayed with Daniel and his large and his family at their home in Ajax, a large house on a quiet tree-lined street. Jennifer also lied to Daniel's parents, telling him that her parents were okay with her staying there. Um, after two more years, it was time to graduate from the University of Toronto. Jennifer and Daniel hired someone they found online to create a fake transcript full of A's. When it came to the ceremony, Jennifer told her parents that the extra-large class size meant they weren't enough seats. Graduating students were only allowed one guest each, and she didn't want one of her parents to feel left out, so she gave her ticket to a friend. Now, I think that's that that's also a little crazy, is the fact that she's still lying to her parents about college. Two years after this had happened, they think she's graduating from the University of Toronto, so... If I had to guess, with Ryerson being a community college, I think it was a JUCO, mm-hmm. which she went there for two years and then went to the University of Toronto for two years. And, you know, I don't know if she ever graduated from Ryerson or if she ever told her parents she graduated from Ryerson, but they think she's graduating from the University of Toronto and, you know, said that only one ticket was given out to each of the graduating students, which, you know, which is why her parents couldn't attend. Then this is, you know, this is when her academic career began to collapse. While supposedly studying at Toronto, she had told her parents about an exciting new development. She was volunteering at the blood testing lab at SickKids. The the gig sometimes required late night shifts on Fridays and weekends. And so she suggested that on those nights that she works late, she would spend more of the week at Topaz's, which was her friend that she was staying with. But her dad noticed something odd. 
Jennifer had no uniform or key card from sick kids. So the next day they insisted that they drop her off at the hospital. As soon as the car stopped, she sprinted inside and Han instructed Bick to follow her. Realizing she was being tailed by her mom, Jennifer hid in the waiting area of the ER for a few hours until they left. Early the next morning. For a few hours? Yep. She she hid in the area of the ER for a few hours until they left because they were so dead set on finding her and confronting her. Like, we know you don't work here. Like, why are you lying to us? You know? And I think she was scared that her dad was going to punish her in some sort of way for lying about having a job Mm -hmm. at SickKids. So it looks like they called Topaz the next morning who groggily told the truth that Jennifer was never staying with her. When Jennifer finally came home, her dad confronted her. She confessed that she didn't volunteer at Sick Kids, had never been in U of, T for, U of T's pharmacology program, and had, had indeed been staying at Daniel's. Though she never told them this, that she never graduated high school, and that her time at Ryerson was also complete fiction. Bick, her mom, wept. Han was apologetic. He told Jennifer to get out and never come back. But Bick convinced him to let their daughter stay. They took away her cell phone and laptop for two weeks, after which she was only prevented to use them in her parents' presence and had to endure surprise checks of her messages. Which, this means that she was also forbidden to see Daniel. Which, I don't know, I don't even know. Like, this is this is honestly just crazy to me that she came out, told the truth about everything. Yeah. Um, I still find it crazy that, how old is she in this? Um, I think at this time she's probably about 21, 22. I don't think she was, you know, 24 yet. I just find it so crazy that they're just controlling her mm-hmm. when she's an adult. Yeah, because it said when she turned 24, she was still sneaking around with Daniel. Because yeah. she was terrified of her dad. You know, I, Which, mean, I mean, I would too. Understandable. Understandable. I mean, I probably would be the same. Yeah. So, it looks like in the spring of 2010, we're going to fast forward a little bit. In the spring of 2010, Jennifer (laughs) reconnected with Andrew Montemeyer, who was a friend from elementary school. And according to Jennifer's later evidence, he had boasted about robbing people at Knife Point in the park near his home. Daniel? No, Andrew. This is Andrew. This is the the first guy. Oh. This is, we're going back to Andrew. This is, apparently this is the elementary school friend. Oh, apparently she already knew him. Okay. So, my bet. And it looks like when Jennifer told him about her torturous relationship with her dad, Andrew Montemayor confessed that he'd once considered, com- once had once considered killing his own father. That intrigued Jennifer. Oh, this is making a lot more sense. Yeah. This makes a lot more mm-hmm. sense. Okay. So this intrigued Jennifer, who then began imagining how much better her life would be without her father around. So Montemayor introduced Jennifer to his roommate, Ricardo Duncan, a goth kid with black nail polish. Over bubble tea in between her piano lessons, according to Jennifer, they hatched a plan for Duncan to murder her father in a parking lot at his work, a tool and dye company called Kobe and Stell near Finch and McCowan. So Andrew is not the one that killed her dad. This kid, Ricardo, did. So it sounds to me like she only wanted her dad gone. Yes, she did. She even said that, you know what she imagined what her life would be uh, be like without her dad yeah never said anything about her mom because her mom was like the one that was like you know let her go live On her life side, yeah. yeah exactly so now it's going back like did they actually like tie her up without her you know i will? Like, i really think like they did but i think it backfired the, on her 
Yeah, I think with most of Jennifer's life, like being, you know, a lie, you know, maybe she lied about being tied up. Maybe she was there and, you know, her mom would have covered for her. But, you know, her dad was still alive. So, you know, her dad was like, be gone, go to prison. So it looks like she gave Duncan $1,500 from her piano classes and they agreed to connect later by phone to arrange the date and time of the hit. But Duncan stopped answering her calls. And by early July, Jennifer realized she had been ripped off. Duncan says that she called him in early July hysterical, requesting that he come and kill her parents. So now here's another plot twist. Now she's saying he wants she wants both of her parents gone. Mm. He said he felt offended and said no, and that was the only money she gave him was $200 for a night out, which he promptly returned. It was at this point that Daniel and Jennifer were back in contact and exchanging daily flirty texts. Devised an even more sinister plan. They'd hire a hit on Bick and Han... Collecting the collect the estate, Jennifer's portion totaling about five hundred thousand dollars, live together and you know, undisturbed by her meddling parents. So money was the problem. Yes. Money money I think money was the big problem. So the reason she the reason both parents were dead or were killed was so she could get the inheritance yep. to pay mm-hmm. for the Okay. That makes more sense. Yeah. So I think wow. she wanted to go after her parents to you know, it, like you said, inherit the money mm-hmm. because they had a lot of money in their bank accounts, and that's but what she wanted. She probably still didn't want her mom to die, but exactly. that was but the only was way just, she was going to get. Happened. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. the only way she's she going to get it. Paid that for. She blew her future by not going to college and didn't know how to like get the money her parents had. So yep, that probably exactly. processed her mind after like thinking about killing her dad. She's like, oh, well, maybe if I just go ahead and kill both of them, yep. I'll get all of their money. So yep, so. This is the evening of the hit. Jennifer was watching TV in her bedroom while her dad read the Vietnamese news down the hall before heading to bed around 8.30 p.m. Okay, that's, that's a little early. I'm not going to lie to you. That's a little, that's a little early for bed. Um, Bick, her mom, was out line dancing with a friend and a cousin. Felix, here we go. This is, this is where Felix comes in. We haven't, heard, we haven't heard of Felix this entire story. He was studying engineering at McMaster University. He wasn't home. At approximately 9.30, Bick came home from her line dancing class, changed into her pajamas, and soaked her feet in front of the TV on the main floor. Huh? She did what? <laughs> soaked her feet in what? <laughs> it just says she soaked her feet. I'm guessing some type of water or something. Well, maybe that just means she was just relaxing. I don't know. That's a possibility. Weird. <laughs> yeah. So, a friend... Um, oh, this man named David. This is David Milvagnum. He was a friend of Crawford's. He called Jennifer and they spoke for nearly two minutes. Jennifer went downstairs to say goodnight to her parents and then admitted she later unlocked the front door. 10.02 p.m., the light in the upstairs study switched on, allegedly a signal to the intruders. A minute later, it was switched off. 10.05 p.m., he called again and said that him and Jennifer spoke for three and a half minutes. Moments later, Crawford, David, and a third man named Eric Cardi walked through the front door, all three carrying guns. One pointed his gun at Bick, while the other, another ran upstairs, shoved a gun at Han's face, and directed him out of bed, down the stairs, and into the living room. Upstairs, Cardi confronted Jennifer outside her bedroom door. According to Jennifer, Cardi tied her arms behind her using a shoelace. He directed her back inside, where she handed over approximately $2,500 in cash, then to her parents' bedroom, where he located 1100 in U.S. funds. A shoelace? Yeah, a shoelace. That ain't doing nothing. No. Which is why, that's why he, that, that's what doesn't make any sense is. That's probably what gave him away. It was like, the a, shoelace. Shoe, a shoelace, A shoelace on. is not gonna, 
it's not going to yeah. keep you, you know, tied up. So then it looks like they shot Han twice, once in the shoulder and then in the face. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't know how he's still alive after that shot to the face, but brutal. And they shot Bick three times in the head, killing her instantly, and then fled through the front door. Um, Jennifer somehow managed to reach her phone tucked into the waistband of her pants and dial 911, having her hands tied behind her back. She pleaded, like, she pleaded with 911, telling them that she needed help. She doesn't know where her parents are. Please hurry. Um, so it looks like the three men thought they killed her dad, but then he was heard moaning in the background. He was awake, covered in blood, with his dead wife's body next to him. So he didn't instantly die. No, he didn't instantly die. He was he was Even still getting alive. Getting shot in the face. Yep, getting well, it shot. Depends where thought, on the face. Like if it wasn't the brain, he can still fight the pain. So if he got like shot in say in the cheek area, he yeah. would still be alive. He would just have a gaping That's hole here. Tough. Yeah. So yeah, he was still alive. He was, I think, transported to the hospital. Um. So then it looks like. November 12th, you know, the dad woke up from his three-day induced coma, had a broken bone near his eye, bold, bullet fragments lodged in his face that the doctors couldn't remove, and a shattered neck bone. Wait, so he is he, his, is he still alive? Or He's still he... alive. He stayed alive through the entire thing. He never what died. a twist. Yeah. So he Backfire. never died. Yeah. Yeah. So it looks like the bullet had grazed a carotid artery, which is, I think it's in your neck. So I'm wondering if he got shot here, well, which he is... he got shot, like... I'm wondering like if he here? got shot this way, and maybe it went down. Maybe. It probably the, graces... Because it can go up. So, like, mm -hmm. if he got shot right here, it could have just affected... It could have popped. Yeah. Like, it could have just... Man. So, on November 22nd, the police brought Jennifer in for a third interview, and this one developed a different tone. So, this detective said that he knew she was involved in the crime. He knew that she had lied to him and said it was in her best interest to fess up. And Jennifer was hunched over and sobbing and asked repeatedly, but what happens to me? Over the next few hours, Jennifer spun out an absurd explanation. She said the attack had been an elaborate plan to commit suicide gone horribly wrong. So it looks like before, you know, this plan was even taken out to be on her parents, she claimed it was just a suicide attempt on her. So it looks like somehow wires got crossed and the men ended up killing her parents instead of her, is what she told the police, which was supposed to be, you know, the... the killers were supposed to shoot her instead of her parents the police arrested jennifer on the spot in the spring of 2011 relying on an analysis of cell phone calls and texts they nabbed daniel david cardi and crawford and charged all five with first degree murder attempted murder and conspiracy to commit murder it was expected to last three months but stretched for nearly 10 more than 50, 50 witnesses testified and more than 200 exhibits were filed Jennifer was on the stand for seven days, bobbing and weaving in a futile attempt to explain away the damning text messages with Crawford and Daniel and the calls with David and desperately trying to convince the jury that while she had indeed ordered a hit on her, on her father, she's only saying her father, three months later, she wanted nothing of the sort. So in, in the end, basically all, it looks like all, it looks like, uh, the two men that had shot Bick and Han and then Jennifer, they all got 25 years to life in person. And personally, I think this has been a crazy story to read because you really don't hear about this every day about a young girl, 24, 22 years old, 23, however old she was, wanting to kill her parents out of the fact that her dad was strict to her.
It almost sounds like this was just like a movie, like the way, like the article that we found, like it, they mm-hmm. laid it out like it was just some movie that you would watch on TV, like it's not a true story. Like yeah. that's how crazy it is. I think it's crazy how like the whole plan was just exploded in her face, backfired. It really not, did. It was not the way she wanted it to go. So no, that was Sucks. definitely a big. It definitely backfired at her, which is what was the main point of the story is you know how her revenge went wrong you know she was trying to get revenge on her dad and you know the main point was to kill him well he stayed alive you know they didn't shoot him good enough so he stayed alive to and ended up tell the story ended up killing one of the the parent that the parent that was on her her. side exactly yeah the parent that was on her side that's where she messed up i know yeah this is this was just a this was just a little article about the revenge on her parents but came eventually came back to bite her in the butt basically so um anyway this has been the first podcast of giggles and crime uh featuring miranda and whitney from the women's bowling team once again these were just our point of views and our opinions on this article this has nothing to do with the college and we will see you next week for another episode of giggles and crime